Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 2. We will be there briefly, and then we're going to be all over. I'll try to tell you where I'm headed uh, so you can follow along. We're wrapping up a series today entitled, Now That's Church. And what we've been doing is looking at the very first church, and we're looking at that church because we want to be the church that Jesus came to plant. And so in order to be the church that Jesus came to plant, we are studying the church that Jesus came to plant, which is found in Acts chapter 2. And uh, the first verse of this section is, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And over these uh, weeks, we've talked about what it means to be devoted, to persistently or consistently, ardently pursue a particular end. And then we talked about what those ends were. The apostles' teaching, which is the core doctrine of our faith, fellowship, the breaking of bread or communion that we talked about last week. Uh, and then today we're going to talk about the prayers. And why was it that the, the first Christians or the early church, why were they devoted to prayer? Why did they persistently and consistently pursue the end of prayer? Many sermons, of course, have been preached on prayer. You've probably heard many of them. I've preached a bunch of them. In fact, last year I preached, I think it was like eight or nine weeks. It ended up being on prayer. And today, I don't want to teach on, well, what is prayer or how do I pray? What's the right posture for prayer? When should I pray? Today, I want to preach on one question. What does prayer do? What does prayer do? And it is the answer to this question that I believe uh, is why the disciples were so devoted to prayer. They, of course, learned how to pray from Jesus. They saw Christ model prayer. And then the first church was very devoted, individually and corporately, to prayer. And so I want to answer the question this morning, what does prayer do? I'm going to answer it uh, with two answers. And the first one is more individual. The second one is more corporate. Uh, you could apply either one to both of those settings. Uh, but I think generally speaking, uh, the first one more individual, the second one more corporate. What does prayer do? The first thing that prayer does is it develops intimacy with God. We see this uh, in Jesus' opening prayer or in his uh, great prayer where he was teaching the disciples, this is how you should pray. Remember, they asked him, Jesus, we see you praying all the time. Will you teach us how to pray? And so in Matthew 6, if you have a Bible, you can uh, open it up over to Matthew chapter uh, 6. And that, that, of course, is where it is recorded, uh, what we know as the Lord's Prayer. I'll flip over there. And a couple, uh, I guess it was 18 months ago or so now, when I preached uh, all those sermons on prayer, I said this, that prayer rips. Now, some of you might remember that. Uh, and the rips stood for prayer is relational, prayer is internal, prayer is persistent, and prayer is spirit-filled. Uh, and the I in rips is internal. Uh, and that in, is what I'm uh, talking about here, that intimacy with God, that internal prayer does. And unless we do the hard work of internal prayer, uh, we will never arrive at the place of sanctification or spiritual growth that God wants us uh, to achieve. Said another way, prayer helps develop our intimacy with God. Well, how so? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us to pray like this. He says, after the introduction, which is the R part of prayer rips, the relational side, he gets into this. He says, uh, in verse 11 of Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, and briefly this morning, I want to walk you through here before I hop into my second point, uh, the, the nature of this internal prayer. And you might ask, well, how often am I supposed to do this kind of prayer? Well, I'll tell you this. I have to do this every day. 
Uh, like, I, I can't uh, uh, not do it every day. Like, I need to do it every day. I need this, this sanctifying prayer life uh, that helps root out what is wrong in me uh, and replace it with which, uh, what is good in him. Uh, and so here he says, give us this day our daily bread. And, and this first idea uh, in sanctifying prayer is contentment. Contentment. Or said another way, rest. This is when you wake up or maybe when you go to bed or whenever it is that you pray and you just sense there's something kind of hanging over you or there's something unsettled inside of you. Uh, in Psalm 131, David prayed it this way. I've calmed and quieted my soul. The, the great Psalm 23 says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the New Testament, Paul says, uh, don't worry about anything. It said, pray about everything. Give us this day our daily bread is the way Jesus says it. Be content. Come to rest. And so the first hard work of internal prayer is, God, what is unsettling me? What's over top right now? What am I worried about? What is causing me all this, this anxiousness? What am I afraid of? What's keeping me up at night? What seems to be dictating my, my total mood or my perspective right now? Give me my daily bread. Help me to know, Lord, you're taking care of me. Help me to come to a place of rest. And this is the first part of that internal prayer. And you begin to identify what that might be or who that might be uh, that is causing that unsettling. And you try to arrive at knowing that God takes care of his children. In the very next line, Jesus tells us where to go next. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the gospel. We are forgiven and then we can forgive others and we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us, not how they have treated us. He says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have you know, trespassed against us. In other words, root ourselves back in the gospel. And so uh, what we're doing here in this moment of prayer is we're uh, not just saying, okay, this is what is unsettling me, uh, this circumstance or situation, or this is where my lack of contentment is, but now you're driving underneath. What is the heart cause? What's the root cause, the gospel issue that sits underneath that unsettling? It is in this part of prayer where you're going to start hearing some of the familiar words like pride or anger or jealousy, selfishness, whatever else it might be. And uh, the, these are the things that are typically underneath that which is unsettling us. And in this part of prayer where we're rooting ourselves back in the gospel, uh, this might come to be. And we look in, we go, ah, yes, it is really pride or it really is selfishness that is driving this particular unsettling. And so if I really want to see it fixed, it's not just about praying about the unsettling or praying that the circumstance might change. It's praying that the gospel might be deeper in me and root out this sinful root. And so we pray through that. Maybe it is pride and you begin to pray through that and uh, the gospel breaks in and you remember how feeble your attempts at self-salvation are. And you wonder, how can I be prideful compared to the righteousness of Christ? How can I be prideful uh, when, when, uh, when he humbled himself? And the gospel comes in and it, and it breaks down our pride. And then it begins to root us in the, in the gospel trait, humility. And then it's contentment, uh, prayer, and then it's rooting ourselves back in the gospel. And so in this sequence of prayer now, uh, we have arrived at contentment. We're now rooted back in the gospel. And look where Jesus takes it next. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's freedom prayer. 
This is actually aligns perfectly with our mission statement to help all people experience redemption and then live in freedom. And part of the way we do that is this inner prayer life uh, where we have arrived at peace or rest. We've rooted ourselves back in the gospel. And now we're asking, uh, God, help me now walk in freedom. Walk in freedom. Uh, the, the, the weight of that thing and the, the destructive nature of this sin, help me to now run away from it, to not go back into it, uh, to, to have strength over the temptation, to no longer return to that place of sin, but to walk in the freedom and the beauty of the gospel. And this is available to you. How beautiful is prayer that every morning you can wake up uh, and start your day in that. There's something over you. There's something in you. You arrive at contentment. You pray the gospel into your heart, and then you walk in the freedom of it. This is, the, uh, I believe, why the disciples prayed so much. Now, Jesus wasn't even in sin, and they saw him do this. And so then they did it. And what did it do? It, it rooted out the ungodliness, and it replaced uh, godliness inside of them. It deepened their roots in, in him, and prayer develops intimacy with God. And again, how often do you need this? <laughs> or how often should you pray? I don't know. How often do you need to do that? Maybe the answer to the question, like, how often should I pray? is probably this, more. Just more. More than you do. How often should I pray? More, more than I do. Especially this kind of prayer that roots the gospel deeper in me. That's the first thing prayer does. It helps develop intimacy with God. And, and by the way, when you combine this with some of the other things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, when you, divide, um, uh, when you combine this with the reading of scripture, when you uh, combine this with proper fellowship and doing this in community with people, when you um, combine this with taking communion, uh, it's like an explosion of the gospel in your heart, pushing out all that needs to be pushed out. Second thing that prayer does is this. It wins the war in the spiritual. Some of you, uh, you've been around long enough, so you've heard me use this phrase before. And the idea here of winning the war in the spiritual, uh, it's uh, typically, uh, I would say, we, we assign this to more of the idea of corporate prayer. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit here about corporate prayer. Uh, but it is also applicable in individual or, uh, you know, like smaller group, like you and your spouse or whatever type of prayer. But the idea here that prayer wins the war in the spiritual is, uh, first, that there's a battle going on in the spiritual. Uh, second, then, that there, the practical tactics and methods uh, of, of the world will not win uh, the battle in the spiritual. Let me say this another way, that there are things that can happen in the practical. There are things that can happen in what we can see or what we want to see happen that will not happen until there is a war won in the spiritual realm. Jesus says it this way. He says, whatever you loose on earth, I will um, bound, uh, loose in heaven. Whatever you bind in earth, I will bind in heaven. That there are ways that God wants to move that will not happen, whether that's individually or for you, until they are prayed uh, into existence. And so there is a battle that is won. And some of us, we are fighting spiritual battles with practical weapons, and you will lose. You will lose. Uh, I'll show you some verses that back this up, but I want to just set up the general idea. Let me give you a phrase here, and we'll keep going back to this phrase throughout our time. Prayer is the power to change the unchangeable, reveal the unseeable, usher in the unimaginable, and provide trust in the unknowable. That's prayer. It does all of those things. 
And it does it by winning the war in the spiritual realm. I want to walk through each of those things one by one because I would um, suggest that in your individual life, in, uh, in our church, in our culture, in our society right now, that um, prayer needs to do all four of those things. It needs to change the unchangeable, reveal the unseeable. How does it go about doing this? Let's look at the first one. Prayer changes the unchangeable. Uh, let me flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter, actually 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. These are some famous verses, but they're worth revisiting this morning. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, and the, the word flesh here, uh, it's not like the, the sinful carnal flesh that sometimes we think of. Uh, instead, this is more like we walk in the practical or we walk in the physical. For though we walk in the practical or the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Let me read it again. For though we walk in the physical, we are not waging war according to the physical. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the physical nature, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those? Prayer. That's the weapon for the Christian. That's the weapon for the church. It is prayer, the weapon that can destroy the stronghold. And there exists in our lives right now, in our families, and in our culture, strongholds. And think of a stronghold. A stronghold is the, the enemy's best attempt at defense. It's the one thing that isn't supposed to be uh, to change. Uh, it's supposed to be the stronghold. It's where they, uh, they put all uh, of their attention, their focus, their strength right there. It's the pivot point. And when the stronghold is destroyed, uh, then, then victory can be won right on the other side of that for the aggressor. In other words, that thing is not supposed to change. But what changes or what destroys the stronghold? Prayer changes the unchangeable. And perhaps you have been trying every tactic, every method Every tactic, every method to, to try to get something to shift in your life or into the life of somebody you love. We could even look out at our culture right now and there could be so many earthly tactics and earthly methods that we think, oh, this will change it. Oh, this will shift it. Those practical methods might be used at one point, but until there is a war one in the spiritual, they will be feeble. They, they will not destroy the stronghold. It is prayer that changes the unchangeable. And so is there a stronghold in your life? Pray. Is there a stronghold in someone in your family? Pray. Is there a stronghold that you see right now that exists in the world that you want destroyed? Pray. We can look in the Old Testament story of the children of Israel told throughout the book of Esther as one picture of this. In the story, at the beginning of the story, there's an evil man named Haman, and what he does is he uh, kind of tricks the king into signing an irreversible edict uh, into, um, into law that will destroy the Jewish people. Uh, and it'll do that by the whole nation and all of the other nations can take up arms against them and slaughter them. And uh, the way the rules were written, if the king signed it, it was irreversible. And so this was uh, set into motion. And uh, one individual, a guy by the name of Mordecai, he hears of this. Uh, and so he goes to the person who, who has the greatest ability to help. It's a woman who's uh, the queen married to the king. Uh, her name is Esther. 
And he approaches Esther and says, this edict has been signed. You need to do something. And really their best chance is for Esther to go talk to the king and to get him to either change his mind, which he really can't even do, but he can't sign another law that will help them defend themselves. And so there's this irreversible edict that is laid out and the practical solution is for Esther to go talk to the king. But before she does this, Esther very wisely tells all of the Jewish people to gather together and to pursue God with intensity and to win the war in the spiritual first. And what happens? Esther 9.1, it's a great verse. It says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, the Jewish people could have just, um, Esther could have just heard this and ran in and talked to the king, but she knew the war needed to be won first in the spiritual. Friends, the war has to be won first in the spiritual. And prayer is the only way to do that. It is the only weapon of war that has the force, the strength to destroy or to change the unchangeable. Second thing prayer does is it reveals the unseeable. You ever had a time in life where you just couldn't see clearly anymore? There is like a, 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 a haze over you, a fog. You're like, man, I used to be able to see so clearly what God wanted me to do in life. I used to be able to see so clearly what God's solution was for a particular problem, but you just can't see it anymore. How do you cut through the darkness? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that prayer, prayer reveals the unseeable. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Oh, and this verse right here is as relevant today as the day that it was written. That we can wrestle in the flesh. We can try our earthly tactics and we can even fight with our earthly tactics, but it's not where the real battle belongs. It's not what the real battle is. There is a darkness. There is spiritual force underneath. And the only way that we can then win the battle is we have to be able to see the right way. God has to reveal the unseeable. In the Old Testament, there's this uh, prophet, his name is Elisha, and uh, he has a, a servant, and there's a, a particular time where uh, the, the nation of Israel uh, is gathered in a city, and there is, stands out against them tens of thousands of Syrians ready to destroy them. And I'm going to paraphrase this story a little bit in some of the language, but uh, the servant and Elisha, they go out and they stand out and they look and they see the armies of the enemies uh, gathered around them, and the servant replies to Elisha something to the effect of, we're in big trouble. We're, we're, we're done. Look what is gathered against us. Look at the, the, the enemy and the strength of the enemy that is here to destroy us. Now, if we could uh, create a metaphor here a little bit, uh, this is not too dissimilar than the church looking out right now in many ways at culture, at the way things have shifted and going out and saying, wow, we're in trouble. Look at how the church has declined. It's true. 
Look at uh, uh, what is going on. Look at what has been normalized. All of this kind of stuff and looking out and going, wow, we are in trouble. But then Elisha speaks in to the servant. See, the servant yet hadn't been trained, didn't yet know how to pray in such a way to reveal the unseeable. And so Elisha shows up and he says, oh, my son, my, my servant. No, you're just not seeing clearly. And what he does is uh, Elisha then uh, tells, he prays and he tells him, he says, look out again. And as he looks out again, his eyes are open and he sees how the, the armies of heaven are surrounding their opposition. As if Elisha's saying, not only, not only are we not in trouble, they're in trouble. Not only are, are, are we not facing imminent defeat, they are facing imminent defeat because the power of heaven is on our side. Okay? And prayer reveals the unseeable. It reveals the unseeable. And when we begin to pray, then all of a sudden, what was cloudy begins to be clear. Where we couldn't identify what the issue was, now we can see it. When the power of the church begins to pray, we can then begin to see that not only, not only do we not need to be afraid, but we need to claim the victory that has already been won. We need to claim the victory that's already been won, right? Now, <laughs> there's an old, uh, old, old, old pastor, old old preacher by the name of Watchman Nee. And he was writing in a, in a very well-known book on the, the prayer ministry of the church. And he creates this incredible metaphor of how uh, uh, the, the will of God is like the power of a locomotive. And, uh, the, uh, but in order for the will of God uh, to move in, the, in this powerful locomotive, in this metaphor, uh, it's got to have some train tracks to ride on. Otherwise, it sits there unable to move in its power. He goes on to, to create the metaphor that the prayer of the church are the laying of the tracks. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Is it possible that God wants to do something and the power of his will is ready to move but cannot go until the prayers of the church lay the tracks? Okay? Prayer reveals the unseeable. Paul, in his uh, letter to the Colossians, begins to write how he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. In other words, he's saying, he, he, Paul is saying, uh, even his, his desperate plea of the advancement of the gospel, his desperate plea uh, that people would understand the love of God, that you can't even understand that, you can't even see that until your eyes of your heart are enlightened. And so in part, we pray for each other that we would all begin to see that in the midst of this present darkness, there is a battle going on and prayer is the power to change the unchangeable and reveal the unseeable. And it is the praying church that allows this to begin to happen. Third thing then that prayer does is it ushers in the unimaginable. It ushers in... The unimaginable. Let me read Ephesians chapter 3. 
For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, a posture of prayer, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Where does that power come from? Through that inner work of prayer that we talked about earlier. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. I love that he uses that, that idea. You have to be strong enough to understand the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's saying it's gonna take a strength. That's why that internal prayer, that individual prayer is so important because as you're praying and as I'm praying and as the gospel is getting more deeply rooted inside of us, it builds up our capacity and our ability to understand the fullness of the strength of God. And then when we combine with others who are also understanding the fullness of the love of God, look what happens. He says, now to him who is able to do far more more abundantly. Another translation says more than we ask or imagine. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power and work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's amening himself. <laughs> He's not even done writing. He's like, I'm just going to throw one in there. Exclamation point. Paul says, as, as you do the hard work of internal prayer, what it's doing is it's building your capacity to understand the love and the fullness and the power of God. And what you're doing in those moments is you're allowing Christ to dwell in your heart more richly. And then when the church comes together uh, and begins to pray uh, in, in such a way that brings the will of God into existence, he says, what will happen is more than you could ask or think or imagine. That prayer can usher in the unimaginable. Why did the first church pray? Why did the early disciples pray? I think they prayed as much as they did and they were devoted to it because they simply believed the words of Jesus. They believed his words. What words? John 14. Let's look at those. They believed in what prayer did. And because they believed in what prayer did, they probably thought to themselves, what better thing do we have to do than to pray? John 14, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. The disciples, I think, were just bold enough or close enough to Christ to believe the words that he said. And their natural response then was, we should probably pray. And then they did see prayer do what? Usher in the unimaginable. There was one moment where they were uh, praying in, in, uh, in, a, in a house, and uh, actually it says a building, and as they were praying in the building, it, the entirety of it was shaken. There was other moments where they were passing around, in essence, a tissue. And as the tissue was getting passed around, uh, everybody wasn't catching the germs and getting sick. As the tissue was getting passed around, anyone who touched the tissue was healed. There was another moment where the apostle was walking, and as he was walking, wherever his shadow would hit, uh, those people, if the shadow hit them, were healed. 
That is the unimaginable. That, that you could pass around a Kleenex and people were, would be healed. Imagine, the, if you could, the, the disciples sitting uh, in, in the room praying. What were they doing before Pentecost? They were praying, uh, and they're sitting in there, uh, and, 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 you go, and you talk to them and say, hey, Peter, I know there's only 120 of you right now. There's 120 of you here uh, right now, but I want to tell you about something, and it's going to seem unimaginable to you because up until this point, not a single person has uh, really converted, uh, but, but the Holy Spirit is going to hit tomorrow. Peter, you're going to stand up, you're going to preach, uh, and then over the next couple couple of weeks, what is now 120 is going to be thousands, and it's going to spread around the world. And what preceded that? Prayer. Prayer ushers in the unimaginable. It changes the unchangeable, destroying the stronghold. It reveals the unseeable, where you now get clarity on how to act, where the darkness is lifted and light breaks in, and then it ushers in the unimaginable. A couple of years ago now, uh, as a church, some of you will remember the story, but quite frankly, most of you will not because most of you were not a part of the, the church back then. It was, uh, it was summer of 2019, and uh, we had been praying, uh, as we you know, always had been as a church, about what was the future uh, of the church. And it, it did seem back then that there was kind of like a stronghold um, that was present, uh, and we would make a little bit of progress and then kind of come back and this and that. And uh, we were still probably in that stage of like long-term sustainability ability, and we were working through it, and, uh, and one of the things we wanted to transition into was a permanent location, uh, and so one day I stood up in front of the church. There was, I think, 165 adults in the auditorium, and, uh, uh, and this was at the movie theater, and I looked down and I said, hey, uh, we've been praying, and uh, there's some land, and we want to purchase this land. It's two acres. We're going to build a 10,000-square-foot building, and we think this is the next step for us as a church, and guess what? The whole congregation, except for like two people, like responded and said, yes, that's it, and it's like, Okay, so we're going to keep praying, but practically, what needs to happen? I said, well, we need to, our budget needs to grow by about 30% or so, but we have a good trend, and I, uh, and I think we can get there by the end of the year, and then we can start breaking ground and moving in this direction. This was in June of 2019. The next week, the next week, our second top giver lost his job. The third week, or the next week after that, our third giver right, um, left the church over a doctrinal dispute. So we went from needing to grow 30% to shrinking by 15% in about a week. Now, this is one of those moments where you go, okay, this is either the enemy trenching in and saying, you're not moving, any fo- uh, moving further. And sometimes we think that. But you know what it really was? <laughs> it was God saying, this isn't my plan. This isn't my plan. And most of it was because, Stephen, you can imagine this plan. And if you can imagine it, it's not nearly as good as what I've got in store. Of course, a couple months go by. We enter into COVID. And um, the church entered into COVID in a, in a season of stagnation. I mean, we really did. We entered in, and, um, uh, and we'd kind of flatlined, and we were there in stagnation. And many of you have heard this story. There's one good, good Friday of 2020. I am praying, and as clear as I've heard anything, God said two things. Um, one, uh, I'll use different language today, but he said this, the stronghold has been snapped. And secondly, something is about to happen um, that will change everything. Within a couple of weeks, we saw something we had never seen, which was what? <laughs> this building. Didn't even know it existed. 
A couple months later, we closed on the building, we moved in here, and everything has been different. And where we wanted two acres and 10,000 square feet, God gave us 20 acres and 24,000 square feet, and all of you. Listen. Now, what do you do in 2017, in 2018, in 2019, when you're praying that God will change the unchangeable, that he'll reveal the unseeable, that he'll usher in the unimaginable, and you can't see, the stronghold is still there, and everything is very imaginable. Is that a word? What do you do? Prayer provides trust in the unknowable. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord your God for he is an everlasting rock. What do you do when you're praying for change and the stronghold remains? What do you do when you're saying, God, I don't know what this next season holds. I don't know how to see this. I don't know where to look anymore. Or what do you do when God does reveal the unseeable and you don't like what you see? What do you do when you're awaiting the unimaginable? You keep on praying. You keep on praying and you keep pressing into prayer. And as you do, it builds a trust for you in the unknowable. It's funny, there was this moment uh, where the uh, disciples were praying and they were praying that Peter would be released from prison. Sometimes you'll, you'll see that in songs, right? I think we just sang one that has it in there. And uh, you'll, uh, you'll, uh, they were praying for Peter to be released from prison, and the disciples were in here praying, and Peter's uh, in prison, and they, uh, and they want to, to see him released. And so they're sitting there praying, and as they're praying, all of a sudden, they hear a knock at the door. They uh, run over. It's a servant girl by the name of Rhoda. She runs over uh, and answers the door, and they're standing Peter, and she goes, ah! I added that in. She shuts the door. She runs back, and they go, who was it? She was like, Peter. And they were like, oh, let's just keep praying. <laughs> well, that was what they were praying for. And they go, well, go answer it again. <laughs> they run over, open the door, and Peter walks in. And they all look in astonishment as if they had momentarily forgotten what Prayer does. And haven't there been those seasons where you have been praying, and maybe it is in your situation right now, maybe it is 2017, and here's what we have learned, if anything, in this church, that you can't make 2020 happen in 2017. You can't. What you can do is keep praying and have trust in the unknowable. Reagan, my five-year-old, she has zero concept of time, right? Uh, and so she'll ask me the best questions. She'll be like, uh, Daddy, are you going to come snuggle with me? She says, snuggle. Are you going to snuggle with me? And I'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll come snuggle with you, Daddy. She's got to go do a couple things, and I'll come back. And, I'll and she'll say this, is it going to be a little bit or a lot bit? <laughs> a little bit or a lot bit? And isn't it interesting that we who completely direct our lives by time and are enslaved by time want to tell a timeline to the only one who stands outside of it? 
Is it going to be a little bit or a lot bit, God? Father, I want to see change happen. Is it going to be a little bit or a lot bit? God, this is really hard. When are you going to reveal the new vision? Is it going to be a little bit or a lot bit? God, we have been begging for you to usher in the unimaginable. Is it going to be a little bit or a lot bit? And what I say to Reagan is, Reagan, which one do you want it to be? And she goes, I want it to be a little bit. Then I say, okay, we'll go with that. And you know why I can tell her that? Because she has no framework for what a little bit is. She don't know the difference if it's 10 minutes or 10 hours. 10 hours is a little bit compared to 10 years. And God, we want to see you change the unchangeable and reveal the unseeable and usher in the unimaginable. And we may not know if it's a little bit or a lot bit, but we can trust our Father that he will show up at exactly the right time. And in the meantime, what do we do? Keep on praying. I'm going to need some more. I've been looking for that. Well, Stephen, I don't have time to pray. No, you just don't believe it actually does what it does. <clears throat> Bottom line. Bottom line. If you believed prayer did what it does, you'd find time to pray. The only reason we don't pray more is because we don't think it does what he says. It does. That's it. Let me end with a story. After I drink some more water. We're going to go one story in the 1700s, one story in the 1800s. I'm going old school. 1700s. Famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, looking out at the nation, seeing it in disarray, gets a letter in the mail. And it's a pastor in Scotland. Pastor says he's felt the urgent need to call pastors to pray. And so Edwards gets this letter and he begins to read through it. And it compels him so much that he writes another letter that actually gets so long, he turns it into a book. And this was the title of the book. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth, pursuant to scripture, promises, and prophecies. That is a book title. Nowadays, it'd be like prayer. 
a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promises and prophecies. And what began there after he wrote this and it began to circulate was the uh, dawning of the second great awakening. 60 years later, the effects of the, the second great awakening had begun to diminish again. And as they had begun to diminish again, uh, and people began to feel it and to look out and to say, what is going on? What is happening uh, in our world? Enter this story. In September 1857, a man of prayer, Jeremiah Lanfear, started a businessman's prayer meeting in the upper room of the Dutch Reformed Church Conservatory Building in Manhattan. In response to his advertisement, only six people out of a population of a million showed up. But the following week, there were 14. The week after, 23. Then it was decided to meet every day for prayer. By late winter, they were filling the Dutch Reformed Church. Then they began to fill the Methodist Church on John Street. Then the Trinity Episcopalian Church on Broadway at Wall Street. In February and March of 1858, seven months after he had begun, every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled. Horace Greeley, the famous editor, sent a reporter with horse and buggy racing around the prayer meetings to see how many men were praying. In one hour, he could get to only 12 meetings, but he counted 6,100 men there. Then a landslide, that's not even the landslide. Then a landslide of prayer began, which overflowed to the churches in the evenings. People began to be converted, 10,000 a week in New York City alone. The movement spread throughout New England, the church bells bringing people to pray at eight in the morning, 12 at noon, and six in the evening. The revival raced up the Hill Hudson and down the Mohawk, where the Baptists, for example, had so many people to baptize that they went down to the river cut a big hole in the ice and baptize them in the cold water. This author goes on to say, when Baptists do that, there really is something going on. <laughs> when the revival reached Chicago, a young shoe salesman went to the superintendent of the Plymouth Congregational Church and asked if he might teach Sunday school. The superintendent said, I'm sorry, young fellow. I have 16 teachers too many, but I'll put you on the waiting list. The young man insisted, I wanna do something now. He said, well, start a class. Well, how do I start a class? He said, get some boys off the street, but don't bring them here. Have them go out into the country. And after a month, you'll have control of them. So bring them in, that will be your class. So he took them to the beach on Lake Michigan and he taught them Bible verses and Bible games. Then he took them to the Plymouth Congregational Church. The name of that young man was Dwight L. Moody. And that was the beginning of a ministry that lasted 40 years. 
Trinity Episcopal Church in Chicago had 120 members in 1857 and 1,400 in 1860. That was typical of the churches. More than a million people were converted to God in one year out of a population of 30 million. Then that same revival jumped the Atlantic, appeared in Ulster, Scotland, and Wales, then England, parts of Europe, South Africa, and South India, anywhere there was an evangelical cause. It sent mission pioneers to many countries. Effects were felt for 40 years. Having begun in a movement of prayer, it was sustained by a movement of prayer. We should pray more. We should pray more. Prayer develops intimacy with God. Prayer wins the war in the spiritual by changing the unchangeable, revealing the unseeable, ushering in the unimaginable, and providing trust in the unknowable. We should pray more. So we're going to leave today praying, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go from here. But would you pray with me? Father, I imagine that the picture we see of the disciples on the night of your betrayal is a picture of your church, which would rather be asleep than pray, which would rather see only what we want to see instead of having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. But Father, we flip to the other side and we see the power of the church in Acts. Motivated not by the negativity that they saw in culture, but instead pushed by how the gospel had transformed them. And so Father, may our response be a response not simply motivated by fear, but may it be a response of love, a response that is so overcome by how the gospel has won us that we would desire it so deeply for the people around us. Desire it so deeply and believing it so firmly that we would actually believe like the first church did in what prayer does. And Father, we can only ask and plead and beg and be faithful in prayer to trust you in the unknowable and to begin to ask you then to do all that we have talked about. So Father, before we leave today, we pause in a moment of prayer. And whether we need the unchangeable change or the unseeable scene, or we're still longing for the unimaginable, or we just need a little trust in the unknowable. Would you speak it into our hearts right now as we begin to pray? Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. 
We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.